have to write if I speak easier. Um, I'm Nancy. I'm one of the leaders at the ARC. And for those of you who may not know, we're going through sort of a sermon series right now um, discussing our three priorities for 2019. Uh, right now, the priority that we're going, we're talking through and, and exploring together is being wholly rooted in Jesus. Um, and for that, I have the privilege and honor of introducing, if you've been at the ARC, you've probably heard him and seen him speak, Pastor Benjamin Robinson, who is actually one of on our board of overseers and who actually pastors our pastors. Um, and he is the senior pastor and founder of Living Hope, um, a church in Emeryville. Um, awesome, amazing, spirit-filled church. And so, yeah, uh, give an ARC welcome to Pastor Benjamin Robinson. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So, uh, okay. So those of you who are, are new or uh, haven't seen me here before, the reason they're clapping so much is not because they like me so much, but because last time I was here, I was 50 pounds heavier than I am right now. <laughs> so. Amen. Yes, losing fat for some people is even more exciting than receiving Jesus. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just, no, thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been an amazing journey. Uh, good to see you all here today. It's always a blessing, an honor, and privilege to, to join you here at the Ark. I'm so excited about what God is doing in this place. So thankful to have an opportunity to speak into your current series. And uh, I'm going to talk to you today about something that is essential to being firmly rooted in Jesus and that is the authority and significance of the words of Holy Scripture. Uh, so let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, and I pray that you would speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit. I pray you give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us minds to understand, hearts to receive. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. The authority of Scripture. <laughs> I want to start by contextualizing the authority of Scripture. I want us to understand that there is a context for embracing, receiving, and apprehending the words of Scripture. We're all in God's eyes like little children. In our eyes, we're grown-ups. In God's eyes, we're just kids. That's why he calls us all his children. God doesn't have any grown children. We're all just children to God. The scripture calls him the all-wise God, which means that he has a level of wisdom that goes beyond anything that we could ever fathom. And if you are a parent, you understand what that means because having a child is a microcosm of what it means to be a child to God. When your children are little, you have to say no to them often, and you don't have the time or energy to explain why you're saying no to them. And you simply say no because you know what's in the best interest of the child, even if the child doesn't know what's in the best interest of the child. And so to be a child is to be put in a place in which you are expected to obey even beyond the level of your understanding. But we often hit this place called adolescence. And in our adolescence, we start demanding understanding as if we have the right to be given an understanding. And as if we are not responsible or obligated to obey anything that we do not understand. And as we enter into early adulthood, we begin to believe that we actually have the right to reject anything that we do not understand. But I remember going through that stage, that stage of, you know, junior high, high school, everything my mom would tell me. Why? Why do I have to do that? Why? Why can't I do that? Why? Why can't I go there? Why? Why? And I was always saying, why? Why? And her response was always the same. Because if you try it, Almost slap you so hard, you're going to have six visions, five dreams, and four revelations. That's why. That's why. But, how, but why, Mom? But why? Because if you do that one more time, 
I'm going to slap you straight through the great tribulation <laughs> and into the millennium. You will wake up on streets of gold. <laughs> she said, but, but why, mom? But why? She said, because if you do that one more time, I will lay hands on you suddenly. I will have you speaking in tongues, but not from the Holy Ghost. <laughs> she said, but mom, but why? She said, ask me why one more time. And see if I don't reach into your chest and pull them lungs right out your chest. Try me. Try me. So I learned not to ask why. But I learned it simply because of threats. <laughs> not because I trusted. But because there was a threat of punishment over my head. And so I stopped asking why. But the older I got, the more I began to look back on those situations and go, oh, that's why. Oh, that's why. Ah, that's. And it began to dawn on me that in my immaturity, even if mom took the time to try to explain why, I couldn't have understand it. I couldn't have understood it. It was beyond my understanding at the time. And learning to be a child is simply embracing the responsibility of trusting mommy and daddy. That when mommy says no, the answer is no. That when daddy says no, the answer is no. And that if mommy and daddy are good parents, they say yes and no for your good. And if God is a good God, he says yes and no for your good. Now, it's a little even, there's even one step beyond this when it comes to the kingdom of God. Because for God, it's not simply about the fact that he understands something that you don't. But in actuality, when God gives us a command, he is giving us an opportunity for obedience and when God gives us an opportunity for obedience, it's because he intends to bless us in a way that transcends our current level of blessing. And he wants to qualify us for greater blessing. And he does so by simply giving us a command. Do you realize that the smallest act of obedience to God has the power to defeat the gates of hell? That every act of obedience, regardless of how small, presses back the gates of hell. It's in the devil's face that is... When, we must understand that the culture of heaven is equivalent to the will of God being done. When God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, then the culture of heaven comes to earth. And God seeks to bring his culture into the earth simply by giving us simple commands to which we are called to simple obedience. I think, you know, if you went back to the Garden of Eden, I think, honestly, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I don't think there was anything special about that tree. I think it was just any tree. I think God just went, hey, Adam, Eve, come here. Um, yeah, this tree right here, this one will do. Don't eat from this tree. How come? Cause, yeah, because I just said, you know, don't eat from it. But why? What's wrong with the tree? Nothing. But if you eat from it, you'll die. Why? Because I told you not to eat from it. And if you do what I tell you not to do, you'll die. But I mean, but why can't we eat from the tree? Because I said, don't eat from the tree. This tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what is it about the fruit that makes it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If you eat from it, you'll know evil, and you're not supposed to know evil. Why would we know evil? Because I told you not to eat from it. Had I not told you not to eat from it, then eating from it would have been fine. But the moment I told you not to eat from it, it became the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, God, why would you give us a ludicrous command like just not to eat from a random tree? I don't understand. Because I'm giving you an opportunity for obedience. And the reason I'm giving you an opportunity for obedience is because I want to qualify you for greater blessing. I want to give you more power. I want to give you more authority. And in order to do so, I've got to give you some commands. Now, the scriptures contain three very important components that are absolute necessities for our walk with Christ. The first is precepts, which are the commands of God. The second is promises, which are the rewards of God. Every time there is a precept, there is always a promise accompanied that accompanies it. 
Whenever God gives us precepts, commands, it's always because he's trying to qualify us for promises. So he says, here's my precepts, follow them, you'll get these promises. We see that so clearly there in that Deuteronomy 28 passage when he says, you know, um, if, you do the, if you do this good stuff, here's the blessings I'll give you. But if you, if you reject this good stuff and do this evil stuff, here's the curses that I'll bring. He says, I'm holding before you blessing and curse. I'm holding before you life and death. I'm holding these out before you good and evil. Now, and then he had to tell us which one to choose. Now, please choose good. Because we were too dumb to know that that was the one we're supposed to choose. Like he had to tell us, by the way, choose good, choose life. But in order to choose the good and to choose life, you've got to choose obedience to the precepts. So first, the precepts of God are his commands. Secondly, the promises of God are his rewards. And then thirdly, the third category is prophecy. And inherent in prophecy is the revelation of God himself. What is revealed in scripture is God himself, God's person, God's being. Prophecy tells us God's perspective on the present and on the future. And Paul tells us that the three functions of prophecy are edification, which means to build up, exhortation, which means to stir up, and comfort, which means to cover up. So the words of prophecy in Scripture come to us either to give us God's perspective on the present, which is foretelling, or on the future, which is foretelling. And in doing so, when God gives us his perspective on the present or the future, he does so either to build us up or to stir us up or to cover us up. He builds us up when we've been broken down. He stirs us up when we lose steam. And then he covers us up when we're in sadness and sorrow. So you've got the precepts of Scripture, the commands of God. And then you've got the promises of Scripture, the rewards of God. And then you've got the prophecy of Scripture, the encouragement of God. And then the final category is not a P. I couldn't think of a P word. But, but, so. but it's just revelation. It's the truth about who God is in himself. You know, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Or of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Or in, in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. And, and, and in verse 14, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the heart of what we find in Scripture, is the revelation of God himself. Not just words about God, but words of God. Not just words that describe how we're to act and what we're to get and what we're to do and what we're to offer to God, but God himself saying, hi, this is who I am. This, this is where I am. This is my heart towards you. This is my posture towards you. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. Now we are the children of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you realize that what is revealed in the pages of Scripture is not just who God is, but who you are? Who you are in Christ, and who Christ is in you. It is the revelation of God, and that revelation of God, accompanied with the word of prophecy that shines like a light in the dark until the day dawns and the morning star appears in our hearts. In addition to the precepts, that call us to obedience, and the promises that cause us to look towards the reward. And we respond to all four of these categories with something called faith. And faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things unseen. Faith is our confidence in God as not only the creator of the heavens and earth, but as the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so I understand that God's a rewarder, and I, I have confidence that God rewards those who diligently seek him, and that's why I diligently seek to be obedient to the precepts. I diligently seek to, I, I, I anticipate the reward, I receive the words of prophecy, and I revel in the truth of who God is. And I get all four of these things in the pages of Holy Scripture, and, and these things are so powerful that Paul says to Timothy how from his youth 
he had known the Holy Scriptures. He said, how from your youth you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul spoke of the Holy Scriptures as being... Uh, uh, um, he spoke of the Holy Scriptures in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and said, All Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God, and it's profitable for, for doctrine and for, for rebuke and for reproof and for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. And there's so many passages of Scripture that speak of the power of the Scriptures if we receive them in our lives. And so because the Bible functions in these ways and because the words of Scripture function in such a powerful way, it's, it's, if, if you were the devil, if I were the devil, I know what I would do. I would seek tooth and nail to diminish in the minds of believers and unbelievers alike the concept of the authority of Scripture. Because if I could convince you that the Scripture has no authority, I could separate you from the precepts. And if I separate you from the precepts, then I separate you from the, I disqualify you from receiving the promises. And if I disqualify you from receiving the promises, then I can dislocate you from the prophecies. And now you don't expect the prophecies to come to pass. And if I dislocate you from the prophecies, then I can also separate you from the truth of the revelation. I can not only separate you from, from what God commands you to do and what God wants to give you for obedience and, and, and what God wants to, how God wants to encourage you through prophecy, but I can separate you from who God is in himself. All I have to do is diminish in your heart and mind the authority of Scripture so that it becomes less to you than what it is. And what it is is the word of the living God. Now, the question is, Benjamin, can you prove that? And the answer to that question is, ain't nobody got time for that. Sorry, I don't know. What, I, mean, I hope you weren't expecting me to prove the scriptures to be true today because ain't nobody got time for that. The fact of the matter is proof is a scientific concept. Proof resides within the world of physics, but the content of scripture is metaphysical in nature. There are no scientific tools that can be applied to metaphysical categories. Physics can never prove or disprove metaphysics. I've heard people say, well, science has disproved Christianity to be, to be, science has proved that Christianity is false. Science has disproved, science has not disproved jack squat. How, how, do you show me a scientific tool that can disprove that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? Show me a scientific tool that can prove whether or not he ascended to the right hand of God. Show me a scientific tool that has any access to anything beyond the physical world. Science lacks the tools to either prove or disprove anything in the realm of metaphysics. So prove? That's the wrong category. That's, that's, the, wrong, that's the wrong category altogether. However, when people say that, I do understand what they mean. I hear people say things like, do you realize that there's more than 3,000 manuscripts of, of the New Testament? with more than 5,000 variants. So how do we trust it when there's so many manuscripts and, and there's so many variants? I say, yeah, there's a lot of manuscripts. 3,000 manuscripts, that sounds a bit like a bad thing. No, that's actually a good thing. We've only got like two or three manuscripts of, one manuscript of Aristotle and, and maybe one or two of Plato. And we don't even have any, any of Plato. There, we have, in other words, the more manuscripts you have, the greater the validity of the thing is the more proof there is of the reality to which the document attests. Does that prove anything? No. But having a lot of manuscripts doesn't disprove anything. But what about the variants? Yes, there's a lot of variants, about 5,000 variants. We don't have the original manuscripts of Scripture. And so in many of these variants, we can't prove what it actually said in the original manuscripts. But the vast majority of the variants are completely irrelevant. It puts an and there in one place it says 700, another says 7,000. So is it 700 or 7,000? It doesn't change the theology of the text. Do you know what there's never a variant on? The lordship of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the life everlasting, faith in his name, Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. There's no variation on those things. The truth of who God is and who his son Jesus Christ is is consistent in the scriptures. 
However, even what I've said in the last two minutes has gone too far in the direction of scientific proof. You completely, even if I could give you scientific proof that Jesus is who he said he was, did what the scripture says he did, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, it would not be enough. It would do nothing for you. You could still be an error. Jesus actually gives us the context for apprehending the truth of Scripture and in likewise understanding the authority of Scripture in two different passages. The first passage is in Matthew 22. The second one is in John chapter 5. And in the first passage, uh, Jesus is speaking and dealing with the Pharisees. Or actually, in the Matthew passage, he's talking to the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were kind of the liberals, the liberal religious leaders. And we'll call them just for, you know, the sake of, you know, our conversation. Let's just call them, I don't know, the Democrats. And then the Pharisees, they were the, the uh, conservative group. You know, we can just call them, I don't know, Republicans. That, that'll, that'll do for now. Isn't it funny that both of these parties had a problem with Jesus? It's cool. I think it's cool. They weren't pretending. Side note, in American culture, both parties claim Jesus. And neither can see that embedded in their very ideology on both sides is a fundamental rejection of the gospel. You know, this is a side point. This is like a side sermon. <laughs> Two of the disciples of Jesus that we rarely talk about, one of them was who wrote the book of Matthew, was Matthew. What was, what was he before Jesus called him? He was a tax collector, which means he was pro-Roman. There's another guy named Simon, not Simon Peter, another Simon, Simon the zealot. He was the most anti-Roman that you could get in Judaism. The zealots were these guys, they were like the fundamentalist extremists. They would like lie in wait and do assassinations and stuff like that. So you had this pro-Roman guy named Matthew and you had this anti-Roman guy named Simon and Jesus called them both to be his disciples. How did that work out? Two guys who in the natural would want to kill one another. Politically, you know how it worked out? Both of them exchanged their politics to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Neither could subscribe fully to their previous political ideologies after having been called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And notice that Simon does not start Christian zealotism after, after Jesus ascends into heaven. And Matthew does not start the Christian tax collector's union. That's a side sermon. That's why if you visit my Facebook and you hit the about button and it says politics, it says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's my <laughs> politics. <laughs> anyway, that was a side message. I preached this morning at Living Hope on the kingdom of God and culture. And that was one of my points from that sermon. So you got that for free. What are we talking about? The Bible. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Matthew 22, and Matthew 22, somewhere in the 30s, somewhere around verse 37, 38, 39. So the Pharisees, they come to, G uh, sorry, these are the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they were, they, di they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were anti-supernaturalists. They didn't think that the resurrection was real. They didn't think miracles were real, any of that. And so they thought, you know, when you die, you're dead. And that's why they were sad, you see. Dad joke. It was a dad joke. I know, I know. My daughter would be freaking out right now. Oh, come on, Dad! So they come to Jesus and they say, uh, we got a question for you. He's like, all right, go ahead. They said, yeah, well, so we had, uh, you know, this, this one family with us, and there were seven brothers. So the oldest brother, he got married, had no kids, and then he died. Now, you know, Moses said that if a man dies without having kids, his wife goes to his brother. And if his brother has kids with her, the kids belong to the older brother, not the younger brother. So the old guy, he dies. His younger brother gets this woman as his wife. 
But then he dies before they have kids. And then the woman goes to the third brother. He dies. Fourth brother. He dies. Fifth brother. He dies. Sixth and seventh. They all die. All seven brothers die. And then the woman died too. So here's our question. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Since all of them had her. What they're trying to show Jesus is that the whole concept of the resurrection of the dead is ridiculous. And Jesus says to them in Matthew 22, I think it's verse 39. He says, you are in error knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Did you hear that? Why are they in error? First of all, you don't know the scriptures. You're in error because you don't know the scriptures. You are in error. But not only do you not know the scriptures, you neither know the, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. That's why you're in error. In order to get what you're supposed to get out of the scriptures, you also have to know the power of God. You must be intimately acquainted with the power of God, or else even if you have the scriptures, you're still in error. But you guys, he says to the Sadducees, you never read your Bible, and you don't know the power of God, so you don't know what you're talking about. Y'all just need to be quiet. And then he says, to answer your question concerning the resurrection of the dead, in the kingdom of heaven, they're neither married nor given in marriage, and given in marriage. But they're all like the angels. He says, however, concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that the scripture says God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And then he just dropped the mic. I'm not going to do it. But <laughs> and it said when the multitudes heard this, they marveled. So Jesus, he sets up this paradigm. He says, if you don't know both the scriptures and the power of God, forget even reading the scriptures. You're not going to get the right stuff out of it. Or you're going to read it and not understand it. Or, or you're going to read it and not obey it. We'll come back to that. Now he's going to deal with the Republicans. He went from CNN over to Fox News. <laughs> so now the people from Fox News come out. John chapter 5, somewhere in the 30s, I think. And Jesus says to them, you guys search the scriptures, which sounds like a cool thing to say, right? This is verse 39, I think, John 5, 39. You guys search the scriptures. And I'm thinking he's going to say, amen. <laughs> Y'all search the scriptures. That's good stuff, right? This is the beginning of his indictment. You guys, man, y'all be reading the Bible because you think that in them you find words of eternal life. But they are the very scriptures that talk about me. And yet you won't come to me that you might receive life. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? You guys search the scriptures, but like the Sadducees, you don't know the power of God. The Sadducees knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You guys know the scriptures, but you don't know the power of God. And by the way, the power of God has a name. And Jesus was like, he is I and I is him. You search the scriptures, but you're reading the scriptures in the flesh. You search the scriptures, but you're searching them by your own power. The, whole, the fact of the matter that you're trying to prove or disprove it means you're in the flesh. You're asking the wrong questions. And you're missing what the scripture is all about. If you read the Old Testament, Jesus is literally saying, because that's all they had at the time was the Old Testament. He's literally saying to the Pharisees, if you read the Old Testament and you don't see me in you're not reading it right. I'm all over the Old Testament. All over. I'm all up in it. That's why when believers talk about, we don't need the Old Testament. What? You know how much of Jesus you lose if you don't have the Old Testament? I mean, let me give you an example. I'm talking about Jesus is all up in, like, G, there are places in the Old Testament where Jesus literally shows up, and it, he's not even trying to hide the fact that it's him. It's like obvious, and even, he, 
I mean, and he told us, like, oh, that, that was me. I'll give you an example. In John chapter 9. John chapter 9, most powerful passage. This is one of the most, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 9. This is one of the most crazy passages. He talks about a dream he had that freaked him out. So much so that he was sick for days after having the dream. And he was sick because he thought what he saw was blasphemy. He had no grid for understanding what he just saw. He said, thrones were set in place. Why is that word throne plural? In Daniel's mind, there should only be one throne in heaven, but there's two. And the Ancient of Days takes his seat. Thousands upon thousands stood before him. 10,000 times 10,000 attended him. The court was set. The books were opened. Then I saw one like a son of man. Son of man is a Hebrew idiom for man. Literally, he says, I saw one like a man. Why did he call him one like a man? Because he could not believe this guy couldn't have been a man. Why? He was riding on the clouds of heaven. Only Yahweh rides a cloud mobile in the Old Testament. <laughs> I mean, if you see somebody riding a cloud like it's his whip, that is God. Only God ghost rides a cloud. <laughs> but Daniel sees a man riding on the clouds of heaven. And he's thinking, I must have smoked some bad stuff last night because this is blasphemy. He's brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days and the angels of God worship him. And Daniel's thinking, this is blasphemy of blasphemy. He's enthroned at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and he's given dominion and a kingdom, and it says all peoples, tongues, and tribes are going to worship him. And he's known from that time as the heavenly son of man, and the, the rabbis argued about the identity of this heavenly son of man. Who is he? How is it that the angels worship him? And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and how does Jesus describe himself? I'm the son of man. If you hadn't read Daniel 9, you'd think Jesus was just saying, I'm just a man. But every time Jesus called himself the son of man, do you know what he was saying? You ever read Daniel 9? That was me. All up in it. If you haven't experienced the power of God, doesn't mean much to you. But as you experience the power of God, and the power of God is the personal presence of God. You go back and read Daniel 9, goosebumps will go up and down your spine. You read Daniel 9, the atmosphere in your room will change. You'll be like, that's Jesus. That's crazy. Because the, because the truth of Scripture is apprehended only in a life-giving encounter with God. There's a phrase that we use in theology, or a word that we use in theology to define Scripture or to describe Scripture. That word is inerrancy. The Scripture is inerrant or without error. But there is a context in which we may understand inerrancy and a context in which we may not. The scripture is without error when it is read for the purpose for which it was written. That is, the scripture does not fail to do what it is intended to do. There's some stuff the Bible's not even trying to do, like be a history book. I mean... If you're reading the Bible for history, you're going to be disappointed at a certain point because it jumps over hundreds of years sometimes. Or it'll tell you a little piece of a story and then it'll jump to some other part. You're like, wait, what happened there? Or sometimes it'll tell you the same story multiple times. <laughs> tell you stuff you don't want to know, stuff you don't need to know about. How many begats can you fit into one chapter? <laughs> but the Bible wasn't written to be a history book. And any history that it contains 
is purposive. That is, it provides us with something that we need to know in order to apprehend the revelation of who God is. Scripture was not written to be a science book. Scripture was not written to be a literary textbook. The scripture was written to declare the reality of who God is. To tell us how to have a relationship with him. To provide us with his precepts, his promises, his prophecies, and his revelation. And when you approach the scripture to receive those four things, the scripture does not fail. And it contains zero error. Now the last passage of scripture I want to bring to your attention is found in Luke chapter 24. This is resurrection day. Jesus freshly resurrected from the grave. He meets these two women there at the tomb. And then he he leaves. And where does he go? He goes to the road to Emmaus where there's these two no-name disciples that basically had given up. And they were going home. It was a seven-mile walk to Emmaus. I think I preached on this last time I was here. Seven miles from Jerusalem. Seven miles from the, pro- from the, the place where God would have them to be. If I were Jesus, I would have done it much differently. He intends to go and to restore these two wayward disciples. This is his first priority, is restoring two wayward disciples who have given up. If it were me, I would have floated in. Disciples, look at me. You know, nail prints in my hands. I would have been showing them my side. You know what I mean? The the pierced in my side. It is I. Look at my feet. It is I. I would have just been glowing. They would have never doubted me again. Instead, he purposefully hides his manifest presence from them so that he could walk with them, listen to their doubts as they were talking all kinds of nonsense, call them fools, And then give them a Bible study. What is it? Luke 24, 27, I believe it is. It says that starting with Moses, he took them through, where is it? Yeah. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. I bet he took them through Daniel 9. I mean, it's crazy. Like, this is Jesus. For over a seven-mile walk, he takes these dudes all the way through the Old Testament. Shows them everything that was written there about himself. And then verse 32. uh, Where is it? Yeah, verse 32 says, And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? He opened the scriptures to them. Jesus, these guys had been studying the scriptures since they were little kids. But it was not open to them until Jesus walked with them on the road and opened it. What we see of Jesus in the gospels is that he is the interpreter of scripture. And until he opens it to us, it remains closed in our heart. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he talks about them putting a veil over Moses' face. When Moses comes down the mountain, his face is glowing with the glory of God. He's got the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone, and he's trying to give them the commands of God, but they're not listening. They're freaking out because his face is glowing. And they said, please put a veil over your face. We can't stand to see the glory. So they put a veil over his face. Paul says they didn't know it, but they put a veil over their own hearts. And even to this day, a veil remains when Moses is read. They didn't realize that they put a veil over those those tablets so that 
now when they hear those tablets read, when they hear the word of God read, they can't understand it because there's a veil over their hearts. But, Moses, but Paul says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Do you realize that until you turn to Jesus with your heart, the veil remains over your heart and no amount of study, no amount of scientific research, nothing will bring you into the truth of Jesus except taking a fundamental step towards Jesus and opening your heart to him and saying, Lord, open the scriptures to me. I can't understand it without you. Here's what's crazy. The resurrected Lord Jesus, the newly minted, resurrected Lord Jesus, before revealing to them the power of God, he reveals to them the words of Scripture. Remember what Jesus says to the Sadducees, you are in error knowing neither the, neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's the order. You are in error knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus does not demonstrate the power of God to them first. First, he takes them into the scriptures. And in doing so, he weds himself to the words of scripture. By taking them through the scriptures, he was sending a very clear message. If you are to know me, you are to know me through this book. I am connected to this book. I am the Jesus of this book. Many Jesuses will come after me. Many will call themselves the Christ. But there's only one revealed in this book. It's not enough to say you believe in Jesus. you got to say you believe in the Jesus of this book. And if there's anything happening in our culture, it's this demonic agenda to separate Jesus from the Bible. I hear people say it all the time. I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And I, I was talking to one young man. His lifestyle was completely out of keeping with Scripture. And I said, you really love Jesus? He said, yes, I love Jesus. I said, but you know the Bible talks about this stuff. And, and you're outwardly, you're not even trying to hide the fact that you're living this way. He said, yeah, I don't believe in that Bible stuff. I love Jesus. I, I didn't say I, I believe the Bible. This is a 2,000-year-old book, more, even more than that. This book was not written for today. This book is outdated. I said, oh, so wait a minute. You believe Jesus, but you don't believe the Bible. He goes, absolutely. I said, but which Jesus do you believe in? If you don't believe the Bible, the Bible is what tells us about Jesus. How can you believe in him? If you, if you doubt the Bible, how do you trust Jesus? You call the Bible a lie, but Jesus the truth? Which Jesus? The Jesus of the Quran? Because there's a Jesus there. He's not the same Jesus in the New Testament, but there's definitely a Jesus there. The Jesus of the Book of Mormon? Him and Satan are brothers. Right? I mean, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's definitely a Jesus there. Is that the Jesus you believe in? How about the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible? He's a created being. He's not God. He's a God, and there's many gods. There's definitely a Jesus there. Do you believe in that? Or did you just make up your own Jesus? You just got your own Jesus, and you just believe in him based on what? Based on the fact that you just made him up out of thin air. Now you've created God in your own image instead of letting him create you in his image. The Jesus that affirms everything about you? The Jesus that accepts you who you are? See, here's the problem with being disconnected from the power of God and the scriptures. If you approach the scriptures without the power of God, you are immediately struck by the fact that the Bible calls us to impossible obedience. And if you are not acquainted with the power of God, you will either become a legalist who will strive for the rest of your life to fulfill the, the mandates of Scripture and fail and judge a bunch of people along the way? Or you will simply become a skeptic and doubt everything that the Bible says. Well, this can't be real. Which Jesus do you believe in? If you believe in the Jesus of Scripture, then you've got to believe in the Scriptures. If you trust in the Jesus of Scripture, then you must trust the Scriptures. If you don't trust the Scriptures, you don't say you trust in Jesus. It's a lie. This was an extremely important, extremely important point made by the framers of a document called the Barman Declaration. It was a group of German pastors that got together to voice their opposition to Adolf Hitler when the majority of churches in Nazi Germany had signed an agreement 
with Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. That Germany at the time was filled with Nazi churches. But there was a group of pastors who gathered in a city called Barman to write a declaration. It became known as the Barman Declaration. And it started with these words. The only word of God that we hear and obey in life and in death is Jesus Christ as revealed in Holy Scripture. That was a quotation from Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon finishes it with these words, and we hearken not to the voice of a stranger. In life and in death. But here's the final point I'll make. And if somebody can come and play guitar or something. Do you know the difference between the relationship between Muhammad and the Quran and Jesus in the Bible? Do you know the difference between the significance of the Bible in Christianity and the difference of the Quran in Islam? In Islam, what has the priority? The Prophet Muhammad or the Quran? In Islam, the Quran has the priority, and the Prophet Muhammad points to the Quran. But in Christianity, Jesus has the priority, and the Bible points to Jesus. Christianity is not book-centered. It's Jesus-centered. We do not worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and Holy Bible. We worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do not worship the Holy Bible. The Bible is not God. The Bible is not a person. The Bible is not a divine being. The Bible is God's love letter to us. And its authority is of utmost importance to us as long as we understand the function of its authority. The function of its authority is to authoritatively direct us to Jesus. This is what Jesus showed the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You see this? Do you read this? That's about me. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Remember when God put them out of the garden and, and God gave them this promise? He said, he said to the woman and the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. He was talking about me. He was talking about me. He took them all the way through the Old Testament and said, that's about me. That one's about me too. That one's about me. That, Moses, Moses was pointing to me. Elijah, Elijah was pointing to me. The prophets, prophets were pointing to me. That was about me. It's about Jesus. The Bible itself is about Jesus. The scriptures themselves are designed to point us to Jesus, and if you approach it for that purpose, I'm going to the Bible to find Jesus. Not to find the correct history, not to figure out whether the Garden of Eden was a real garden or whether it's a parable, not to, not to read it and say, were there a literal seven days of creation or was it like seven days is a thousand years, was each of them a million years, and when did the dinosaurs go? It's, who cares? You're asking the wrong questions of the Bible. The question is, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Holy Spirit, open my heart as I turn to the pages of your word and show me Jesus. Open my eyes to see Jesus. I, I, I long for Jesus. Jesus is what I want. Not scientific clarity. Jesus is what I want. And Jesus says to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he shows them, all of this, it's about me. And then once their hearts were open and their hearts were burning within them, then he enters the inner room with them, sits down at the table, takes a piece of bread, says, watch this, watch this. This is about to blow you away. Crack. And he breaks the bread, and they go, oh, my God, it's you. We walked with you all this time, and we didn't know we were walking with you, but now we see it's you. Do you realize that when you walk 
in the words of Scripture and you meditate on the words of Scripture and you open your heart to receive the words of Scripture, if on a daily basis you embrace the words of Scripture, do you know what Karl Barth, the great theologian of the 20th century, said that the Bible is a waiting room where we sit and wait for the great physician. That's the purpose of Scripture. All of a sudden, the revelation of Jesus Christ breaks forth in your life. Scripture is powerful. I had a friend when I was in seminary, and I asked him, I said, how did you receive Jesus? He said, well, um, I was a crazy person. He said, I was mad at my professor one day at university, and so I decided to kill him. So the next day, I brought my gun to school. I waited outside his classroom. As soon as he stepped out of the door, I was prepared to shoot him in the head and kill him dead. I was that angry with him. He said, but there were several students waiting to talk to him, and they were standing there, and they were talking to this professor, and it was taking him too long to come out, and I was getting anxious and antsy. He said, and somebody walked by. One of the Gideons was out there. They handed me a New Testament, and I was going to, he said, before I knew what I had done, I, I took it, and I was like, no, wait, I don't want this, but he was already gone, so I just shoved it in my pocket. He was taking a long time, so finally, I decided to open it and just start reading it. He said, and I began to read about this guy, Jesus. And all of a sudden, my heart started to open. And then my heart started to break. And then the tears started to flow. And he said, I sat there and I read and I read until I read the whole thing. And I opened up my heart and received Jesus right there. And the professor walked right past me and I didn't kill him. That's kind of a good reason. I mean, that's not the best reason to decide to go into the ministry, you know. <laughs> He's a seminary student. Well, I didn't kill my professor, so I guess God wants me... <laughs> That's the power of the scriptures. That's how God uses the scriptures to reveal Jesus. That's the point. God uses the scriptures to reveal Jesus. The Bible is not revelation. The Bible is, the, is our primary conduit of revelation. The revelation of who God is flows to us through the words of scripture. That's what it means that all scriptures God breathed. And if you go looking for anything other than Jesus Christ himself, you're going to find yourself in error. But if you go looking for Jesus himself, all of a sudden, he, your heart opens not only to hear and receive the words of Scripture, but to encounter the power of God. And if you know both the Scriptures and the power of God, you will never be in error. You will always walk in the truth. And you'll walk in the light as he is in the light. You'll never be in darkness. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would give us clarity and understanding, that you would establish us in the truth, and that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. And today we receive and we believe your holy word which is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. We give you glory in his precious holy name. Amen. Amen. I uh, just want to invite you guys uh, to respond to that powerful message. Uh, 